0: Let's pray together. Our Father, today we are so grateful that you have assembled us with your people to sing songs to you and now to hear from your word. We thank you that you have given us your word. We pray that we would have wisdom to see what you say to us, all its contours, all its much different terrain and in it that we would glean wisdom for what you have to say. Spirit of the living God, You know the things that you need to highlight in our eyes and our hearts, that we might be shaped by your word to live according to your will. So come, fill my heart with fire. I'm so humbled at the thought of proclaiming your word. Fill your people's ears with readiness and an anticipation for all that you have to say and help us to love the wisdom of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you're new with us, our general pattern as we preach is to preach through different books of the Bible. And so we start at the beginning and work our way through the end, and that's what we're doing right now with a book of the Bible called Ruth. Ruth is this small four-chapter story, and we've been working our way through its chapters. And a few weeks ago in Chapter 2, we talked through this idea from the book of Ruth called Providence. If you're with us, you remember that Providence was that biblical, wonderful idea That God is active and at work in the world, working all things together for his glory and the good of his people, right? That in every detail of the universe, it's being sustained by and preserved by and ordained by and directed and orchestrated by God. And all things are working to the glory of his son and to the glory of the father and for the good of his people. From the grass that grows to the rain that falls and every intricate detail of your life and mine, God is active in the world. And we saw that, if you remember, in the story of Ruth. For example, remember with me how we saw that Ruth, the dirt poor widow, and Naomi, her hungry, desperate mother-in-law, that they show up in Bethlehem. And the text reminded us, out of all the times they could have come, Out of all the days and all the weeks and all the months and all the seasons of the year, they just so happened to come at the beginning of barley harvest, the text tells us. And then we saw that out of all the fields in Israel, that Ruth could have went to glean some food. She just so happened to go to the field of Boaz, who happened to be not just an eligible man, not just an eligible man for marriage, but a redeemer, and we'll talk again about what that is, but the one kind of man who could rescue Ruth and Naomi. And it just so happens that on that particular day, as she's there, Boaz happened to come, and the two of them got to meet. And as we talked through all that, we said none of that was just happenstance, or circumstance, or coincidence, but providence. Okay, so then today what I want us to consider is this. What does a person who is convinced of providence do? What does a person who is convinced with every fiber of their being that God is at work in the universe, that he is in all things bringing about his purposes for his glory and our good in every detail, what does a person who believes that God is active in the world do? And I'll start by saying what he doesn't do. What they don't do is therefore then become passive. What they don't do is consider that because God is active, that must mean then that we should become passive. That because God's unseen hand is at work in the world, that doesn't therefore mean that we sit on our hands in passivity or throw up our hands in inactivity that God's action doesn't negate ours, but rather when I and when you become confident that God is at work in my work, that God is active in my activity, then what it does is free me and fuel me for more work, not less, for more activity. In fact, it frees me and fuels me to join God in his purpose of working so that all things might bring him glory and be good to others. If I have a great deal of confidence that my life, your life, if suddenly you you could become convinced that your life is not like this tightrope, right, where you've got to make sure every step is perfect because one wrong step and you could fall off into oblivion. Or your life is not this crazy corn maze where one wrong turn and you're lost forever. But rather, this confidence that comes from all my steps, missteps and all, God is working together for his glory and the good of others. When you have that confidence, suddenly it frees you to take risks. It frees you to be active. It frees you to do a great many things for the glory of God and the good of others. That's what we're going to see in the story of Ruth today. That while God has been and continues to be active in the story of Ruth, that doesn't cause Naomi or Ruth or Boaz to suddenly become passive. God's activity doesn't produce in them passivity, but rather quite the opposite. God's activity in the story fuels and frees them to be active as well, to join God in the mission of bringing him glory and doing good to others. And that's what you're going to see in chapter 3. That Naomi is going to act. She's going to strategize. She's going to plan. She's going to plot. She's going to scheme. She's going to be active. And she's going to do that out of that word we heard a few weeks ago, hesed. That great word of loving kindness. So deep we don't just have one English word to even define it. That, that word that's for the interest of the other, the love of the other, the kindness of another. Well, Hesed is going to drive Naomi's activity in chapter three. But moreover, Ruth is gonna act. And Hesed is going to drive her activity for Naomi's good. And moreover, still, Boaz is going to act. And Hesed is going to drive his actions for good for both Naomi and for Ruth. And here they said my road. Through all of that, God is active. Through the activity of Naomi, through the activity of Ruth, through the activity of Boaz, God is active. Through their work, God is working. So let me show you the text, right? If you're in the book of Ruth, turn to chapter 3. If you're just jumping in, let me just give you a quick background on chapter 2 so that you know where we're jumping into. Right? I want to just remind you very quickly how Ruth chapter 2 ends. Ruth chapter 2 ends, if you remember in chapter 2, Ruth and Boaz meet. Right? And when we meet Boaz, we find out he's not just another man of Israel. He is a redeemer. Right? The technical term is a kinsman redeemer. And if you remember what we said was, the law of Israel had this special provision, which was if you were a widow whose husband died, and you had no sons, there was a law that a brother of that man, or a close kin, a relative, could marry the widow so that their land wouldn't be lost, it could stay in the family, you wouldn't lose your inheritance, and moreover, the son born to that new couple would be actually the dead man's son. It was a way to ensure that your family line didn't disappear from the face of the earth, but that you had a future, and so the descendant of this new marriage would actually be considered the son of the dead man. It was a way to make sure your family survived. Well, we find out in chapter two, Boaz happens to be a relative, a kinsman, or a potential redeemer. And so when we see the two of them meet, Ruth and Boaz, it opens up in chapter two all kinds of potentials and possibilities. Right? When we see the two of them friendly kind to one another, the friendly, good, pleasant exchange, it begins to make us go, is something going to happen here? Right? Could, could one thing maybe, you know, lead to another? And who knows what could happen? And so at the beginning of chapter 2, as we're reading, all kinds of possibilities start coming up for us. And so when we get to the end of chapter 2, we find out that Ruth stays in Boaz's field for all the harvest season. That's about seven weeks from late April to June. And so then our minds begin to wonder, who knows what happened over those seven weeks? Maybe Ruth bumps into Boaz. Maybe Boaz bumps into Ruth. Maybe they have exchanges. Maybe they trade glances. And you wonder in this harvest season if there's a romance beginning to blossom. And so you wonder with all kinds of potentials and possibilities, where could this story be going? Except when you get to the end of chapter 2, you read that the harvest season is over, Ruth is living with her mother-in-law. And in some ways, it almost feels like the story has made this big circle. And you start back, you end up where you started, which is harvest season is over. So there is no more reason to go to Boaz's fields. So there's no more bumping into one another. And then you're back at where you started, which is harvest season is over. How are these two going to eat? You see, there's, there's sort of two problems in the book of Boaz, uh, book of Ruth, two huge holes that have to be filled. And that is the question of famine and family. Right? That's the big problem. Famine and family. How are they going to eat? And how is their line going to survive? And when you get to the end of chapter 2, despite all the potential and possibilities, it's almost like you end up right where you started, which is, again, how are they going to eat? Harvest season's over. And and what about family? There's no more bumping into Boaz. And so chapter 2 ends with, what's going to happen here? But there's one big difference about how chapter 2 ends versus how chapter 1 ended. And that is that now there is the ever slightest, smallest little glimmer of hope in Naomi's heart. When chapter 1 ended, if you remember, she was lamenting for everyone to hear what? The Lord, what did he do? I went out full to Moab. The Lord has brought me back empty-handed. Empty. That's how the Lord has brought me, right? And so he, she laments to everybody, my life is empty. And so chapter 1 ends with sorrow and bleakness. But in chapter 2, God has, ad, has been at work behind the scenes in such a way that hope begins to flutter in Naomi's heart. And hear me some Hope is a really powerful thing, because when she's hopeless and helpless in chapter 1, she's ready to throw up her hands and throw in the towel, and she's done. No future. But because she's seen God has been at work, they they were able to survive. There, There was kindness shown to them. Now, suddenly, she's got this thought about what the future could be. Hope hope fills your heart with a dream about what things could be. And so, when you get to the end of chapter 2, now Naomi is filled with hope and has this potential of what could be. God's action in chapter 2 leads not to passivity or inaction, but for her, with hesed driving her heart, to creatively, strategically, and actively work for Ruth's good. That's what we're going to see. Look at 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? So pause there for a second. When Naomi left Moab, if you remember back in chapter 1, she had said to Ruth, Listen, Ruth, if you follow me, I got nothing to offer you, no future for you. I can't set you up with anyone. You're going to be a widow for as long as I am. And then even more. But now in chapter 2, Bo arrived, right? The eligible, strong, you know, warrior from the war back home, this good bachelor. And now the nosy mother-in-law, in in a good way I mean that, is starting to dream about what she could do. And so she does what any good mom would do with an eligible single daughter. She is looking to set her up. And so she starts plotting and scheming. And she's ready to send her daughter out on a date. Now, pause for one second. Uh, I want you to see something and notice something, which is this. Back in chapter 1, Naomi in chapter 1, verse 9, had prayed that the Lord would bring a good husband into Ruth's life, right? She had prayed that the Lord would bring a good man, that, that Ruth would find herself in the husband, in the home of a new husband. And yet what I want you to see is that praying that the Lord would bring her a good husband doesn't stop Naomi from trying to bring a good husband to her. Right? Praying, oh Lord, bring a good man into Ruth's life doesn't stop Naomi from actively working to bring a good man into Ruth's life. So again, I want you to see, trusting that God is at work doesn't lead us to stop working, to doing what we ought to do. Naomi is going to go all out in trying to set up her daughter-in-law. And it's not because she doesn't trust God anymore. Right? That's not born out of, well, if you won't do it, I'll take it into my own hands and I'll make it happen. You see, her actions are not in conflict with God's, but rather are in concert with God's. They're working together. Providence is not either he acts or we act, but that since he's at work, we can creatively strategically, actively be at work in the world for the glory of God and the good of others. His work is in some way my work. My work is in some ways the ways that he works. He is active in my activity. Praying that Ruth gets a husband doesn't stop Naomi from carefully planning a date for her. And I think what you should also notice there is is that God intends for naomi to be the very answer to naomi's prayer right god intends to use naomi to be the way in which naomi's prayer is answered and god loves to do that right doesn't god love to do that in us you may be praying in this season as we head to easter that this person that you love would would hear about jesus that's a great prayer but God may also choose to let you be the means by which he answers that prayer in that you're going to go talk to that person about Jesus. You may pray that this grieving person would find comfort in this season. That's a great prayer. But God may also choose that your phone call, your email, your dropping by to visit might be the very means by which your prayer is answered. God loves to do that. God loves to employ you as often the very means by which he's going to answer your own prayer. God chooses here to let Naomi be the path through which Naomi's prayer is going to be answered. And so, Naomi orchestrates a date. And if ever there was a term for a hot date, this is a hot date, right? I want you to know, I'm, if I wasn't so dark, you would see me blushing <laughs> as we read through this section, because it's almost... Awkward and embarrassing. What what exactly is Naomi suggesting here? Look at 3 verse 2. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself. And put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then... Go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. So here's, here's Naomi's plan. Naomi says to Ruth, listen, here's what, what I want you to do. Boaz is going to be at the threshing floor tonight. He's going to be off by himself. So what I want you to do is, one, I want you to wash and anoint yourself. So take a bath and put on some perfume, right? So wash and anoint yourself is Hebrew for would you pretty yourself up, please? right? Because she's basically saying, look, every time Boaz has seen you, you've been in sweatpants and you smell like the field. So I need you to pretty yourself up. I need you to take a bath. I need you to put on perfume. If the barn needs to be painted, paint the barn, right? That's what you've got to do. You've got to make yourself look nice. I heard a pastor say that, by the way, so that was, that's allowed. You need to make yourself look pretty, okay? And then looking as attractive and as alluring as you possibly can, I need you to go down to the threshing floor, but don't just walk up to him. Wait till he's finished with his work, and not even just finished with his work, wait till he's finished eating his meal and drinking his drink. Naomi is an old, wise woman, right? So she's saying, look, he's going to be in his best mood after he's full, right? You want to know how men work? Feed them, give them good drink, and they will be in the best mood. This is wise practical strategy. God's at work, I'm at work too, right? That's what Naomi's doing. So you want to make sure he's in the, not when he's cranky and hungry, when he's good and he's full. And then I want you to, and this is what she says, and then this is crucial. The the word then there in verse four is sort of highlighting, this is critical, this is crucial, and this is where also it gets very awkward and weird and crazy. Then when he's asleep, After you've noticed where he's lied down, I want you to go to his bed, and I want you to uncover, and the word uncover there is make visible something that's hidden. I want you to uncover, pull up his garment, his feet, and then lie down there. So put that together. You want to go, wait, Naomi, here's what your plan is. You want Ruth to look as attractive as possible. Go to Boaz in the middle of the night. Make sure the two of you are completely alone. No one else is nearby uncover his legs lie down so that when he wakes up he finds a woman in his bed and then don't worry he'll take it from there <laughs> whatever he tells you to do you just be ready to do I, I, I want you to hear this and I want to be very clear this is one of the parts of the Bible where it's telling you what happened and not what you should do okay So I don't want to hear single ladies telling me that they're crafting a Ruth 3 kind of date. (laughs) None of that, okay? This is describing to you what happened as opposed to what you should do. Now, here, there's no way around this, right? Because this chapter is loaded with innuenda, uh, loaded with sort of double entendres. Uh, Threshing floor was a place in Old Testament times that was known for illicit relationships. So if you were in the first century, you couldn't hear that Ruth and Boaz are alone in the threshing floor without that immediately making your mind go, what on earth is happening? You couldn't even hear feet. Feet was a euphemism for not just your feet, but sort of the southern region of your body, right? And so that makes your mind go, what's happening here? Lie down. When you lie down with someone, that wasn't just proximity, That was you lied down with somebody. And so there's terms here all over the place that make you go, what exactly is happening here, right? All kinds of terms here that that leaves us with questions like, what is Naomi suggesting? And we've got questions about that, right? Like, is this some kind of custom that Naomi and Boaz would have known about that we're just not privy to or aware of? The uncovering of the feet, the lying down. Is there some kind of cultural custom there? Or is it, look, in that day, what you would have normally had is a dad go and arrange a marriage. That's what you would have had. But Ruth doesn't have a dad. Elimelech's dead. Her dad is back in Moab. She has no man to represent her. And so perhaps Naomi knows if this is going to happen, Ruth is going to have to do something. And maybe this is her best way of making sure that this doesn't happen in public and become some kind of thing for gossip in the town. She doesn't want to risk that he's, she's publicly rejected or ridiculed. I mean, this is a Moabite going to an Israelite, a poor going to rich widow, going to this worthy man and, and talking. So how on earth can we do this in a way that's completely discreet, away from everyone else, right? It, it's not like Ruth can just go up in the middle of the day. And, and speak to Boaz. I mean, in fact, in, in this book, this is the one chapter where these two potential mates have even a few minutes to themselves. It's the one scene in the book where there's not noisy neighbors or, or busy harvesters nearby where the two of them are completely alone. Right? It, it's, it's not like there's any other opportunity for that. Here at last, they'll finally be alone. There's a bunch of questions that we have that we don't exactly get all the answers to, but we know this much. We know that if this was even a little bit embarrassing or awkward for us, you can imagine what this would have sounded like in the first hearers. When an Israelite read this section and knew all that they knew and all the connotations, you can imagine what this was doing in their minds. They were thinking to themselves, what on earth is about to happen? If Ruth and Boaz come together, in any kind of inappropriate way, that's completely forbidden. But what the narrator's doing is this. Hear me. He's doing what any good storyteller would do. He is building up the tension so that you can't help but wonder what happens next. Right? If if you're an Israelite reading this, you're going, "Is, is it getting hot in here? Right? You're reading this, and and, and there's part of you that's afraid, and part of you that's excited, and it's like this thing you can't turn away. You've got to find out what happens here. It's like you're at the edge of your seat, filled with anticipation. And while there's a bunch of stuff we don't know, we do know this, that though God is at work, Naomi's at work too, creatively, strategically, uh, actively working, and what's driving her is hessed love for Ruth. But, but Naomi's not the only one to act. Ruth will act too. And her hessed love will drive her to take actions for Naomi's good. Right? That's what you see next. Naomi gives her the plan and Ruth basically goes, mm, Okay, all right, I'll do that. Verse 5. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went down to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Just picture Ruth for one second. Can you imagine her standing there in some corner or crevice in the dark, watching her man at work? And then she's waiting for him to finish, watches him finishing his meal, And then she wants to make sure she knows exactly where he's gone to lie down because the last thing she wants to do is go and uncover the wrong legs, right? So she's paying attention. That's what mom said. Pay attention to where he went to lie down, and she does. And can you imagine her standing there in the corner, heart beating out of her chest? Is he asleep? Nope, he turned. Is he asleep? When is she supposed to go? And then when it finally, I mean, how long did she wait there? And then when it finally seems like he's sleeping, she creeps over softly, pulls his garment back, uncovers his legs, and lies down there. And I can guarantee you she did not sleep a wink, right? Her heart is beating out of her chest because what on earth is about to happen? You have no idea how Boaz is going to... I mean, she doesn't even know what she's waiting for. All she's been told is Boaz will tell you now what to do. Right? And so she's lying there waiting for God knows what and you're wondering how on earth is Boaz going to respond? I mean, an upstanding, land-owning, honorable Israelite is about to wake up to find a woman in his bed. How is he going to respond? Well, we'll find out. Look at verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Right? Something happens that Boaz wakes up. Most of the commentators think that he just got a, a draft and that that was the idea, that the draft would make his feet cold and suddenly he's startled. Like when your spouse pulls up all the covers and you wake up, right? Something happens. Boaz gets startled. He turns around and behold, it's supposed to capture the shock of the whole thing. Behold, a woman is there. Now it's so dark in the middle of the night, he doesn't even know who it is. And so in verse nine, he says, who are you? And you, you've got questions that you almost wish the text would tell you. Like, like what kind of tone did he use? Right? Was he angry? Who are you? Or, or was he inquisitive? Like, who are you? Or was it like a, who are you? Kind of thing. Right? <laughs> it was not the last one. I just wanted to laugh. <laughs> right? Who are you? He asks. He doesn't recognize. And now, hear me. Now it's Ruth's turn to speak. And when she does, she goes off script. Right? Right? What I mean is, till now, Ruth has done exactly what Naomi said, down to the teeth. Go down to the threshing floor. She did. Make sure you look pretty. She was. Watch him eat. Wait till he's gone alone. She did. Then when he's asleep, go and pull the cover off his feet and then lie down there. She did all of that. And then when he wakes up, he will tell you what to do. And now she goes rogue. She, She sort of takes initiative on her own. Because Naomi had clearly said, wait and hear what Ruth, what Boaz tells you to do. Instead, Ruth here tells Boaz what she wants him to do. Verse 9. And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Till that moment she had followed Naomi's instruction down to a T. And instead of hearing what Boaz wants her to do, now she takes this initiative, this step to tell Boaz what she wants him to do. And what she says to the question, who are you, is, one, I am your servant. Now, we heard her say that back in chapter 2. She said when she met Boaz, I'm your servant. But she uses a different word here. In chapter 2, she said, I'm your servant. And that was bottom of the social ladder servant like bottom-of-the-barrel-scum servant. But a lot happened in chapter 2. Boaz had elevated her, treated her like a worker, invited her to the table, and so now she uses a different word for servant to say, I'm, I'm not just a servant, I'm, I'm your servant, almost I'm your maid servant, as if to say, I am an eligible woman of Israel. I'm an eligible wife woman of Israel. I am your servant, and then she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Spread your wings. That word wings, depending on which translation, you'll see it differently. For example, if you have an NIV version of the Bible, it'll say spread your garment. In the ESV, it'll say spread your wings, and so you sort of go, which is it? Is it spread your garment or spread your wings? The Hebrew word was the same for both. And they both mean something great. Spread your garment. The only other time we see that phrase, spread your garment over me, is in this passage in Ezekiel 16 where God, Yahweh, is speaking to his beloved people Israel. And, and I'll just read if you Listen to what he says. God is saying, later I passed by, and when I looked at you, and he's speaking to Israel, and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Right? So so how the Old Testament used this was spreading your garment was what God did to his people. and When he did that, he gathered her to himself, entered into a covenant, and she became mine. And Ruth is saying, that's what I want you to do for me. Spread your garment over me. Make me yours. Say over me, you're mine. And then she otherwise uses the word wings, and that's important too. Because in chapter 2, Boaz, when he had met Ruth, prayed for her. And what did he pray? I'm praying that Yahweh would bless you, the same Yahweh under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And And Ruth is doing what? Ruth is essentially doing the same thing Naomi had to do, which is she's asking Boaz to be the answer to his own prayer. She's essentially saying, yes, I do want Yahweh to take me under his wings, but let it be by me coming under your wings. You be the answer, Boaz, to what you prayed in chapter 2. Take me under your wings. Spread your garment over me. What what Ruth is essentially doing, Sammar wrote, is she's proposing to Boaz. She's saying to Boaz, will you marry me? Because you're a redeemer. You're you're the one person that can do this. Would you redeem me? Would you make me yours? Would you marry me? Now, I, I want you to hear, in doing that, she's breaking all the rules. She's a woman, he's a man. She's young, he's old. She's poor, he's rich. She's a Moabite, he's an Israelite. And so the question is, what on earth would have pushed her to take that kind of risk, go rogue, off the script, take that kind of initiative? And the answer is, it's because of her hessed love for Naomi. She, somewhere between getting dressed up and walking to the threshing floor, had decided that she was gonna go off script. She had planned, she had plotted, she had schemed, she had taken initiative, she had a strategy in mind that she was gonna go off script, and the reason is because of her hesed love for Naomi. What do I mean? You see it in how Boaz responds. Look at verse 10. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. And so automatically there itself, you sigh with relief going, he's not angry, he's actually glad. And he goes on to say, you have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men whether poor or rich. So pay attention for a second to what Boaz says. Boaz says, in what you just did, your last, this kindness, is even better than the first. What's he talking about? We know the first kindness. The first kindness Ruth showed was that she had left Moab itself for Naomi's sake, in Hesed, love for her. And yet Boaz is saying, what you just did now is even greater than that. Why? Because he says, you're not just seeking marriage from one of the young eligible men of Bethlehem. You are specifically seeking marriage from me, a redeemer. You see, here's the thing. If she marries any other eligible man in Bethlehem, it secures her future fine, but not Naomi's. The only way Naomi's inheritance, the only way Naomi and Elimelech's line continues is not just if she marries an eligible man of Israel generally, but a redeemer of the family specifically. And so she goes off script because she says, you're the one person who can marry me in such a way that it will not just ensure my future, but restore and redeem Naomi's as well. To which Boaz says, what you just did now is even greater than what you did before. Right. Because even now, Ruth, even in who she wants to marry, is driven by hesed love. Hesed love for Naomi. But she's not the only one who's going to act that way. Boaz will too, and then with this will be done. Not only does Ruth act for Naomi's good, not only does Naomi act for Ruth's good, Boaz will act too. He won't be passive. He'll act, and his activity will be for the hesed good of both driven by Hesed for both Naomi and Ruth. Look at what he says now. Verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For, you are, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Here's what Boaz says. Boaz hears Ruth and he says, I'm in. I'm ready to marry you. Right? I, I'm totally in. But, but here's something I want to point out for you very quickly. And that is, by now, we know that Boaz is significantly older, whatever that means, than Ruth. We know that because he keeps calling her daughter. That's one. We know that because he keeps talking about the young men, right? He had young men in his field. Ruth didn't go after all the other eligible young men. Instead, she sought him. And in that, all I want you to see is that Hollywood would have never come up with a story like Ruth and Boaz. Right? Hollywood's story of a love story is just find the most attractive man and the most attractive woman and put them together. But there's something even deeper than that. Attraction's fine and important. And yet, here, an older man and a younger woman, not the couple you'd imagine, rich and poor, Moabite and Israelite, landowner-servant, Uh, Just not at all young and old, and yet there's something that binds these two together. He says, all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. That is, what is most attractive about Ruth is her character. And what is most attractive about Boaz is his character. Because when time passes and beauty fades, that will still remain. In fact, let me just tell you something I learned this week. The words that's used here of describing Ruth as a worthy woman is the same word, same phrase that's used in Proverbs 31. If you know the chapter of Proverbs 31, it's this chapter that speaks about the ideal wife and mother, the perfect lady. And and what I didn't know was that the Hebrew Bible isn't arranged the way that our Bible is. The books aren't in the same order. And so scholars tell us that Ruth actually appeared much later in the Bible. In fact, many scholars think it a- appeared right after Proverbs. And if that's true, then Proverbs 31, the last chapter of Proverbs, ends by describing to you the ideal woman and describes her as this industrious, hardworking, never tiring, ready to provide in hessed love for a family woman. And then right after providing a description of what the ideal woman is, says, and if you want a picture of that, read Ruth. All the townsmen know of your worthy character. And I want to point out for you the very obvious, which is brothers and sisters, particularly those who are looking for marriage. If you're a woman, Ruth is the kind of woman you want to be. And if you're a man, Ruth is the kind of woman you want to marry. And the same thing goes for Boaz. Men, Boaz is the kind of man we want to be. And if you're a woman, that's the kind of man you want to marry. And though we've seen Ruth's character highlighted, the verses that follow are about to highlight Boaz's as well. Look at verse 12. And now I know it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he will not redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Boaz has just told her, I'm ready to marry you. I want to marry you. And now we find out even why he delayed though, right? Because till now, just at this moment, it's almost like you're about to hear the wedding bells ring. You're about to send out the invitation cards. They're going to get married and they're going to live happily ever after. And just when you're ready to go to the chapel and get married, it's like the record player screeches to a halt and everything comes to a stop because he goes, the only thing is there's a redeemer closer to you than me. And now you get a clue as to why he didn't perhaps initiate all along, which is there's someone in this custom, in this line, who's got dibs at Naomi and redeeming her and Ruth before he does, right? It's almost like in one moment you're going to go, Ruth is finally going to get married. And then all of a sudden you get this curveball thrown in. But now the question is to who, right? Because now the question is there's this third, it's like a love triangle has been introduced and you get this third stranger and you wonder how will these things turn out. But in that, what I want you to magnify and see is Boaz's character, which is he has just professed that he would love to marry this lady and yet he's not going to be shady. He's not going to circumvent this. He is willing to even lose her to do what's right. And so he says to her, you just lie down here. If he'll redeem you, then fine. If not, as the Lord lives, as Yahweh is alive, I swear to you, I will. And then, like a good man who protects her, we saw that in chapter 2, he says, lie down here. He's not going to let her walk in the middle of the night. God knows what will happen. And then she lies down there, but watch this. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning but arose before anyone could recognize one another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. If, seven mile Road, you weren't sure of the worth of character of Boaz or the worth of character of Ruth, would you just get this final scene? These two have just expressed that they want to be together. They want to marry one another. He wants her. She wants him they're completely alone it's midnight no one's around and they are inches from one another and nothing happens nothing happens Hollywood would have have given you the steamiest love scene you could have ever imagined but the Bible gives you has love something stronger thicker deeper better more profound, more beautiful. These two who love one another, want to marry one another, are in the middle of the night, two inches away from each other, and to the glory of God, nothing happens. I can promise you neither of them fell asleep. Neither, I mean, both of their hearts were pounding two inches away from each other, blood pumping, and yet to the glory of God, nothing happens because there's Hesed love. There's a concern for the glory of God and the good of the other. And we should pay attention to that. A pastor named John Piper highlights, do you know how powerful this purity is right here? I mean, literally, there's global impact to the purity these two showed. Because God pulls these two into his story. These two who were pure on that night in Bethlehem pulls them into his story so that through their line and through their descendants, many thousands of years later would be born in that same floor, on that same town, a virgin who would give birth to Jesus Christ. And Piper rightly says there is powerful impact that your purity has bigger than you're aware of. She could be in the bed with you, and Piper reminds us to say, look at Boaz. Boaz who for the glory of God and for the hessed love of another remains there as he ought and gets swept up into God's great purposes. And born in that very town is a savior for those of us whose stories don't exactly look like that. For those of us who did give in, who don't have a resume like theirs. For every one of us who has made a muck and a mess was born in that same place a great savior who would take on our sins, whatever they may be. And these two get swept up into God's great purposes. Boaz is the kind of men, by the grace of God and the help of the Holy Spirit, we men want to be. And the same applies for the kind of women and Ruth and who we want to be. Verse 15, and this is where the passage ends. And he said, bring the garment to me that you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. When the passage ends, Boaz is going to act in Hesed love for the good of not only Ruth, but Naomi also. He's going to give her a bunch of grain. The commentators say about 60 pounds worth. So heavy he has to hoist it on her, put it on her. She goes back and and if those two didn't sleep all night, you can imagine there's one more person who didn't sleep a wink that night. Naomi's been pacing back and forth, looking out the window, praying, oh God, don't let anything bad happen. And now Ruth walks in and she goes, how'd you do? How did the day turn out? And Ruth with 60 pounds of grain shows up and says, Boaz did this, and Boaz gave this to me, and Boaz did it so that, hear this, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And for the careful reader, the attentive reader, your ears perk up, did Boaz just say empty? Did Boaz just say he doesn't want Naomi to be empty? And suddenly you go back to chapter one and you hear Naomi standing in Bethlehem, lamenting, the Lord has brought me back empty. And yet it's as if through Boaz's hands, the Lord whispers, no, I haven't. No, I haven't, Naomi. I have no intention to leave you empty-handed. I have every intention to have you full. Remember, there was two big problems, food and family, right? How how is there going to be something to fill the stomach and something to fill the womb? And it's as if at the end of chapter 2, you're given this hint. There, Naomi is standing with 60 pounds of grain. And it's as if through the hands, through the activity of Boaz, the Lord himself is saying, I've given you seed now to fill the stomach. You watch. You watch. I will give seed to fill the womb as well. God is active in all of this. And Saddam al when you hear that, when God is active through your hands, when he's working through your work, it should free you to God-glorifying, hesed-driven activity for the glory of God and the good of others. Not passivity not sitting on your hands or throwing up your hands, but working with your hands with great freedom knowing that he's at work in every bit of your work. We ought to be the most risk-taking, active people in the universe because we know God is sovereign. We know what he's done for us. So by the time you get to the end of chapter 3, you've got this hint. The stomach is full. The womb will be also Ruth is getting married. The only question now is to who? And that's chapter four. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your active work in the world by which you planned and orchestrated all things culminating to the arrival, the life, the death, and resurrection of your own son. In that we see all your good purposes are active and alive in the world. And we know that our life, every step of it, is caught up in that great purpose by which you appoint all things to yourself and to your Son for our good. So make this company of men and women the most risk taking, adventurous, creative, strategic people on the planet, in the city that we would give our lives in thousands of tangible ways for the glory of God and the good of others. Speak through your word in specific ways as our heart needs to hear. Thank you that you have not left us empty-handed, but have filled us up. We pray this in Jesus' name.